Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you have blessed us with. We thank you that we can open its sacred pages and we can literally have an encounter with a divine mind. And we ask that you would be with us, that you would elevate us, as it were, into a heavenly atmosphere at this time, Lord. That the Holy Spirit would be our invited guest of honor and that he would take the words of Scripture and speak to us individually and personally where we are at, including myself. You know what we need to hear. You know why you allowed us to be here in this presentation this morning, Lord. You do not waste time and you do not waste our time. So we know that you have something special for us. Give us minds to, to, to perceive and give us ears to hear what you have in store for us, that we do not miss out on the blessing that you would have us to take home with us today. So please bless us to this end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 where we will find the church of Ephesus. Today's presentation, I told you, is entitled Practical Lessons from the Church of Ephesus. The subtitle is called, But Lost. But Lost. Technically, there's an ellipsis, but you can't see the ellipses in the air, and there's no PowerPoint. So see the ellipses in your mind. It helps with, the, with where we're going. Thank you. But Lost. We're going to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up in verse 1, and we're just going to read through the church of Ephesus, seven verses, to get a foundation and maybe for most of us a refresher on what the Bible even says about this particular church. It says here in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 1, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary." Now, how many of you would like to go to a church that's described like that? Amen? Amen? Amen, amen. So, I would love to go to a church that, like, my home, people said, what's your home church like? Oh, man, we labor for the Lord at my church. We don't grow weary doing the work of the Lord at my church. We know our Bible so well at my church, we know when the preacher's wrong. Like, we know this stuff because we believe this stuff. We're sold for this stuff. I mean, this, when you read the description of this church... It sounds like a super solid church. And you come to verse 4. Nevertheless. Now you know it's not going to be good if you heard all these positive things and the next, you know, it's like, nevertheless. Whenever I would hear that, you know, that word from my parents, but. It's like I was always like, dread would fall upon me. You know, you've been doing this good, you've been doing this, but. It's like, tell my brothers, run for the hills, right? We're in trouble. It's like, it's about to go the opposite direction. It says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left... Your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But you have this, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. 
So we have this description of this unique church, the church of Ephesus. And yes, there's a historical element. Yes, there's a prophetic element. But I just want to look at it for what the text says in its just rawness right here in front of us. So we see here some positive descriptions, but then we see this, nevertheless, you have left your first love. How big of a mistake is that? That's a pretty big mistake, right? For a Christian, that, that, this is actually what I would call a fatal mistake. To leave your first love, this is a reference to Christ. And so uh, this is literally a fatal mistake. So what can we learn from this church about us? Because sometimes when we read scripture, we see it as something in the past. Oh, this was a city by the name of Ephesus that had a church with problems, you know, well over, you know, a thousand years ago, about 2,000 years ago. That's this situation right here. Or Old Testament, we read the Old Testament and we think that, wow, this story took place 4,000 years ago. That's unique for the Israelites, but that really doesn't relate to me. But I want to suggest to you that the Bible, when God inspired it, he inspired it with you in mind. In fact, I'm going to show you from the Bible. Go to 1 Corinthians real quick. This is a quick uh, minor digression tangent. But I think you'll believe me if I show you a text. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Not that I just show verses to make you believe, but you know what I mean. Like if you see evidence, you're more likely to believe. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, we're just going to look briefly at verse 1 and 2 and then verse 11 to, to substantiate this point I want to, to get across at this time. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Here in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is speaking about the time period of Moses. Do you see that in the text? He's referring to the time period of Moses. Jump to verse 11. He then recounts through the whole chapter some of the historical faults and failings of the people of God in the wilderness under Moses' leadership. And then it says in verse 11, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for their admonition who lived in that time. Is that what the Bible says? It was written for whose admonition? Our admonition and notice what it goes on, kind of like, well, who is the R in the text? Upon whom the ends of the world or the age have come. So the things of Moses, thousands of years ago, were written with who in mind? With you in mind, amen? Was written with the people at the end of the world in mind. So the closer you get to the end of the world, the more relevant the entire Bible becomes. Let me say that differently. Even though the Bible is an old book, even though the Bible is an, you know, seen as an old book by many, it is not losing relevancy because we're getting further from the events it describes. We're getting, it's increasing in relevancy because the things that were written were especially written for those who will engage in that final conflict before Christ returns. And that's you, by God's grace. Amen? And so when we look at Revelation, the church of Ephesus, back in Revelation chapter 2, we can't see this as something that's in the past. We can't see this as something that is not relating to me because everything in scripture that was written was written with us in mind. So with that being said, let's look at three points from Ephesus. Again, there are many points. I, I want to suggest this, that there are many things you can glean from Ephesus for your Sabbath afternoon readings. 
I would encourage you to reread Ephesus multiple times and let God show you personally things that we're not going to talk about today. It's packed full of things. Um, but like a good preacher, I will stick to three points. Amen? So we will have three points this morning from Ephesus. Being right, being busy, and being present. Being right, being busy, being present, but lost. Let's talk about it. So point number one, being right, but lost. How many of you like to be right? Does anyone like to be wrong? Just curious. I know there are unique personalities. I was just curious. No? Okay. So we like to be right, correct? We love to be right. No one likes to admit they're wrong. I, I will admit I, to a fault. There has been times in my life when, when I'm in a conversation and a discussion with someone and it comes to the point when I know I'm wrong. In fact, when I was a brand new Christian, uh, one of the guys I was studying the Bible with, he was a good friend of mine, still is a good friend of mine, um, we were, he was trying to show me something from the Bible and I was brand new and I'm arguing with him. I was like, no, 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 no. It's not true. It's not true. Halfway through the conversation, I realized it was true. And then once I had this epiphany, I was like, my heart sank. I was like, but I don't want to see that I'm wrong. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to convince him I'm right, repent, and then let him know later I'm, I was actually wrong. I was wrong. And I proceeded with that plan uh, because no one likes to say that they're wrong. Question, is it good to be right? Is it good to be right? You all want to be right. Is it good to be right? Is it, let me ask you differently. Is it, is it wrong to be right? No. Let's look at some texts in the Bible. Go with me to uh, 1 John 4, 1. We're going to see in the Bible, it is good and it is perfectly okay to be right. There is nothing wrong with being right. And when I'm speaking about being right, I'm speaking of theological concepts, big biblical concepts here. So we're going to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to look at a few texts here on being right. God wants us to be right. He wants us to be correct, I should say, in our understanding. So 1 John 4, verse 1, it says here, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but do what to the spirits? Test the spirits, right? He wants you to put them to the test and see whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So if someone claims to be a prophet, does God want you to get that right or right? Yeah, he wants you to get that right. He wants you to know you are a prophet or you are not a prophet. It's okay. In fact, it's biblical. In fact, God wants you to be right. Uh, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's in the New Testament. Uh, what's nice about the T's, they're all grouped together. So if you see a Timothy or a Titus, you're super close. All the T's are right next to each other. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I had to learn all these uh, shortcuts when I was uh, learning my scriptures. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, talking about being right, but lost. It says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, and notice the language of the text. Test how many things? Test all things and hold fast what is good. Does God want you to be right? Yeah. When you test something... God wants you to be right. He wants you to be able to hold on to what is good and to get rid of, by definition, what is not good. It's okay to be right. In fact, Paul praised a group of people that desired 
to be right. Go with me to Acts 17, verse 10 and 11. Acts 17, verse 10 and 11. Here we have a group of people who did something very special. They inspired me as a young Christian. I wanted to be like them. And I'm going to explain how I did that to a fault. First Corinth, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 17, verse 10 and 11. The Bible says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word of God with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Did they just believe their preachers? No. They would hear Paul preach and say, man, that was a good sermon. That was a powerful sermon. I could accept the word of God, but let me just go double check my Bible first. Let me just go double check the scriptures first just to make sure what Paul or what so-and-so said was actually correct. And is that spoken in a positive or negative context here? That's a positive thing. Does God want you to be right? Yes. Every time I preach an evangelistic series, I plead with the people, do not believe me. I am the last person you should believe because we're talking about eternal salvation here. And if I'm wrong, you don't want to be wrong. You need to take your Bible and say, is what that man said biblical? If not, I don't care who he is. You need to reject it. God wants us to be right. But Ephesus wanted to be right. But sometimes in our desire to be right, we can lose our first love. Let me share with you a quick story. When I learned this concept as a young person, I, I, you know, this is before I had a laptop and an iPad and all these fun gadgets, you know. Back then I had two, three things in my backpack, a Bible, a concordance, and a journal. That was it. Big backpack and I just carried this thing around everywhere. It's big Young's concordance. Anyways, so when I go to the church and I would hear a pastor preach, I would take notes on the sermon. I'd create an outline of his sermon while he was preaching. Sounds good, right? Well, I wasn't doing it to learn the sermon. I was doing it to catch how many incorrect statements or concepts I can find because I wanted to be a Berean, right? And so people would look at my notebook and they're like, what are all these black boxes around these, these portions? I said, oh, those are all the heresies in the sermon today. <laughs> they'd be, are, you, are you serious? I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, wait, so you go to sermons to look for heresy, not a blessing. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly. I'm looking for the heresies. I'm looking for the incorrect statements because I want to train my mind to be a, I'll be a Berean. Because God wants me to be right. So I want to be, I want to be right. You know what I realized after some time? I realized I was missing out on a lot of blessings that God had intended for me. Because I was more concerned about being right than I was concerned about connecting with Jesus. Do you see the problem with that? There's nothing wrong with being right. But when you're more concerned about being right than you are about connecting with Jesus, there is a problem with that. Why was Ephesus like this? They had good reason. Ephesus had really good reason to be like this. Go with me to Acts, back to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Ephesus had a really good reason to, to, to kind of err on the side of being right. Acts chapter 20. We're just going to read a few verses from here. You could read the whole context. Again, I would encourage you to do so. But Paul speaks to the elders of the church of Ephesus and he says some pretty startling things. 
So Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, just to give us our context here of who he's speaking to. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So he's calling for the elders of the church of Ephesus. Do you see that in the text? Okay, now go to verse 29. What does he tell these elders? For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in where? Among you. Who is he speaking to though? The elders of the church of Ephesus. So he's not saying in generic sense, wolves will come into the church. No, 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 no. He is saying wolves will come in among you, among church leadership, amongst the elders of this church, Satan will establish wolves. It goes on to say, not sparing the flock. Notice this, verse 30, just to emphasize the point. Also from among yourselves, people presently that he's speaking to, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves. I want you to imagine you're in that board meeting with Paul. You're on that church board meeting with Paul. You're sitting there. Paul says, hey, I'm going to go, but there's one thing I want to tell you, one last thing, and you're excited. What do you want to tell us, Paul? Uh, one day, savage wolves will take over this boardroom. They will be here. Oh, and by the way, some of you who are at this board meeting will actually draw away people to perverse things. God bless you. I have to go. And he leaves. I, I mean, how would, what would you think the next time brother so-and-so gets up to preach a sermon? Wait, wait, is he the one? Do you see what I'm saying? Is he the one that's going to draw disciples after himself? Oh man, I'm going to check Bob. There's a Bob, I apologize. I, didn't, I don't know all your names, but you know, it's like, hey, Bob gets up to preach. I'm going to check him because he might be the guy that Paul was referring to. Do you see that? So they had a very prophetic reason for wanting to be right because they knew something was coming. They knew a day was going to come when Satan would come to sweep them away. So he wanted to prepare them, so he warned them, but in, 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 in assimilating this warning, they took it too, too far. Um, I want to read to you a quote here from uh, uh, the Bible Commentary, Volume 7. Spirit of Prophecy kind of tells us what happened to them, what they let go of. It said that they neglected to cherish Christ's compassion and tenderness. You see, it's okay to be right, and it's good to be right, but you don't want to be right without compassion. Amen? You don't want to be, because what, what, what is a person who's right without compassion? What are they? I mean, in our modern vernacular, we might call them a jerk, right? I mean, no one wants to say it, right? It's Sabbath for our church. But, but that's what we want. That's really kind of what it would be, right? Someone who's right but lacks compassion. I mean, typically we're like, man, that guy's kind of, kind of a jerk. Like he just comes up and Bible bashes you and walks away. Um, and and ha, ha, none of us appreciate that, do we? Yet sadly, I think sometimes we can fall into that trap when we're trying desperately to be, to be right. So as a young Christian, because I wanted to be right, I used to watch Christian debates. I don't know if anyone's here into apologetics or watching debates. I used to like, like pop 
big thing of popcorn and just sit there for hours and watch debates. Watch so-and-so, William Lay Craig, take on this atheist. Or, you know, Ravi Zacharias, take on this atheist. Or even Christians debating each other. You know, a Calvinist debating this, you know, non-Calvinist guy, Arminian guy, whatever. I just, to me, I just would like sit there and just like eat pop, watch debates. Watch debates. Like, get them. Get them. That's right. That's biblical. Show them. That's right. You know, I just, I, to me, that was like my sanctified entertainment because I had given up other entertainments. So I really love debates. And I would prep myself for the day when I would engage in debates. I... I went to a local church I will leave unnamed. It is in Southern California, so I shall leave it unnamed. Um, and I went there with the intention to debate the pastor. That was the actual, again, I was a young Christian, foolish, zealous, etc. But it was not to do anything of, of like, I wasn't going to like convert him or anything like that. But in my mind, I just wanted to test my skills. Can I, can I tangle with the scholar? What's the best way to find out? Go to a dance. So I did. I went to the church. I waited till the church was over. I said, I want to talk. We went to his office. We sat down, started asking very intentional questions. He kind of realized what was going on. Next thing you know, we engaged in a debate on state of the dead. And I, like in my heart, I was like dancing, you know, I was like, here we go. Like, this is what I was training for. I was preparing for. And it didn't really do anything. We went back and forth for about five minutes. He kicked me out of his office and banned me from his church. That was about it. So, but I had this desire. So anyways, in my preparations, um, I eventually became a canvasser. And this is a story of a debate gone wrong. I knocked on a door, I met a man, and um, as soon as I engaged him in conversation, he asked if I was a Christian. I told him I was, and he asked me if I then believed Jesus was God. Now, if someone asked you that question, what would you say? See, you're very kind. You said yes. I didn't say yes just like that. See, in my foolish young pridefulness of wanting to be right and affirm that I'm right and let people know that I'm right, I didn't just say yes. I, I, did, I kind of fixed my collar a little bit. I was like, is Jesus God? I mean, that's Christianity 101. Everyone knows that. And he said, oh really? I said, of course. He says, how do you know that? I pulled out my handy pocket Bible, went to the Gospel of John, said, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Therefore, Jesus is God, drop the mic, walk away. Won a debate, clean and cut, not so quick. He said, that's clever, that's so smart. May I see your Bible? He took my Bible from my hand. He took my pocket Bible from my hand. In the same gospel, he said, since you believe what John says, let's look at John 17. Didn't Jesus pray that you would be one with him the same way he is one with his father? That makes you God. Here you go. Wait, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. He, he said, no, 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 no. You said that. And I was like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and then, you know, like, like every good Adventist, we want to go to the Greek. Well, we got to look at the Greek, you know. There could be something in the Greek. This guy starts speaking Greek. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. He's like, oh, I thought you knew Greek. You mentioned Greek. He's like, do you know Hebrew? He starts speaking Hebrew. He's like, here, I'm going to write some stuff. Then he starts writing Greek words. Like, oh, let me translate it for you. Write it in English. And then he says, do you need the Strong's number? You use Strong's. He, he had this stuff memorized, guys. He starts writing Strong's concordance numbers down for me. And I'm sitting there just like taking it like this little canvassing kid that doesn't know anything anymore. And I just take the little index card, have a great day, and I walk away with my tail between my legs. I was literally devastated and destroyed on is Jesus God? Now, is that fundamental Christianity, yes or no? That is. 
I think God allowed that debate to go so wrong because at that time in my life, I really cared about being right. It was really hard for me to swallow that pill. It hurt me inside to swallow this pill and to realize, wow, like I know I'm right, but in his mind, I'm what? I'm wrong. And it just, it really hurt me. And I remember that night I prayed and different things and the Lord showed me through life and through scripture that yes, you want to be right and it's good to be right. But Anthony, you do not have my compassion or my tenderness. And therefore, you're not going to be right. And I literally felt like the Lord allowed me just to be humble that day. Fast forward, I'm a, I eventually become a Bible worker, a little bit older, a little bit more mature, having my devotions. And I think this is how God wants us to be right. I study a particular parable. That day, uh, the Bible coordinator said, hey, I got a contact for you. I want you to study with this person. So I go to meet this person. And I enter his home with my partner. We're brand new Bible workers, still young in the faith. And uh, it was supposed to be a simple study on salvation, planet salvation Bible study, right? Nothing can go wrong with that Bible study. As soon as we sit down, the man looks at us and he says, hey, I don't want this Bible study. I was like, okay, I just met him. Why? What's going on? He said, I want you to answer one question. And if not, tell the person in charge. Um, I don't ever want anyone to come back to my house. So now I'm feeling all this pressure. Like my first day on the job as a Bible worker. And I was like, why is this happening to me? He says, if you can't explain the parable of the rich man and Lazarus to me, I don't want you coming back. That day for devotions, I studied the rich man and Lazarus. I had read Christ's object lessons on the rich man and Lazarus. Well, in my mind, I thought, well, I think I know the right answer, but I'm going to be very careful nowadays. Very, very tread carefully. I just opened the Bible. I read some verses. I said, I don't know much, but that's what I do know. And I'm young, so I don't know. He's like, that was the best explanation I ever heard. I was like, what? He's like, I've talked to three of your pastors, and I have not heard an explanation so good. And in my mind, I was like, praise the Lord for Christ's object lessons. Amen? I'm serious. But it was like, it was a different paradigm of, it wasn't trying to be right to prove I was right. It was you faithfully study the Bible, and when you're put in a situation, God will use you in a compassionate, tender way to share with someone. Amen? Because it is possible to be right, but lost. Our second point I want us to talk about is busy, but lost. We read that Ephesus was very active. Um, they were very intense about trying to do the work of God. But even for those of us who are very active and very busy and very engaged, we have to be careful because you can be so busy with life that you don't connect with Jesus. Let me give you an example. Go to Luke 8, 42 to 46. This will be a shorter point. Luke 8, 42 to 46. Take some liberty with this story here and use it in a slightly, slightly different way. Luke 8, 42 to 46. We have the woman with the issue of blood. And I want you to notice what happens in the story. It says here in the Bible, For he had only daughter, who was about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went with him, the multitudes thronged him. Or if I can say that differently, like they, they were all over him, right? Um, you might have seen this before. If you've ever seen like a video of a celebrity walking down the street, everyone all of a sudden, they see a celebrity, everyone just literally just throngs the person, right? That's what it means to throng them, like surround him because everyone just kind of wants to touch him or get looked at or get a selfie, whatever, right? 
Remember, at this time, Jesus was healing people and his fame was spreading through all the land. So at this time, people wanted to be close to Jesus because being close to Jesus meant you received the benefit. So here, Jesus is being thronged by the people. Verse 43, Now a woman having the flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. So you have these people that are surrounding Jesus. Everyone's touching Jesus. And this woman comes from behind, gets her hand through the crowd, touches the hem of the garment, and receives the healing that she desired. Verse 45. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you. And you say, Who touched me? Sometimes I don't think we catch the sarcasm in Scripture because it's like text messaging, right? It's like, I can imagine good old Peter. I love Peter. I don't know about you. I love Peter, right? Because when Peter's right, he's really right. But when Peter's wrong, he's really wrong. So I just love Peter because he's either all one way or all the other. Here, Jesus says, who touched me? And Peter looks to him and says, why are you asking that? Everyone's touching you, Jesus, right? That's what he's saying. Everyone's touching you. Like, they're thronging you. Like, everyone is pressing against you. Like, how can you even ask us who touched? The answer is everybody, like, obviously. But Jesus had recognized a special touch that day. He, verse 46, but Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. You see, Jesus had a special touch that day. Now, was, all, was everyone there touching Jesus, yes or no? Yes, but did everyone receive that virtue from Jesus? No. Desire of Ages, page 344, says, The Savior can distinguish the touch of faith from the casual contact of the careless throng. So it wasn't even about making contact, but it was how you made contact. Does that make sense? I want to say that again. It's not about making contact, but it's about how you make contact. I think this is relevant to us today because I work at a college with young people and sometimes they come and say, oh, it, my devotions aren't working. That was always a weird sentence to me. My devotions aren't working. Like, how are they supposed to work? Yeah. It's like, it's not working. It's like, what do you mean it's not working? It's like, well, I'm having devotions, but nothing's happening. And I realized from this story, it's not just about contact. It's how you make contact. And here, it was a touch of faith. Um, just so you know, it really was faith. She wasn't presumptuous. It sounds kind of new ageish, touch his garment. But she's really doing Malachi 4, verse 1, by the way, um, where it says, uh, when the Son of Righteous will rise, there will be healing in his wings. In the literal, Young's literal translation, when you read that, it's actually healing in his garment. The edge of the garment is the wing. So she literally, she took Malachi literally. There's healing in the garment. Touch the garment, I'm going to be healed. It was a touch of, touch of faith. It wasn't casual contact. It was not casual contact. I have a quote for you um, that I want to read. And if you want these quotes afterwards, come ask me. Um, normally I would PowerPoint presentation this so you can all follow along. Um, this one's a little bit longer. So education, page 260. It's such a good quote though. Education, page 260. Everyone should meditate on this quote in your personal time. It says here, an intensity such as never before was seen in taking possession of the world, in amusement, in money-making, in the contest for power, in the very struggle for existence, there is a terrible force 
that engrosses the body, mind, and soul. In the midst of this maddening rush, God is speaking. He bids us come apart and commune with Him. Be still and know that I am God. It sounds like she's describing our world, doesn't it? I always try to think, like, I was like, man, were you really describing 1800s? It's just hard to see sometimes. But you think about it. Do we live in a world that's just a rat race? We do, right? The maddening rush for money, for power, whatever it is. It goes on to say now, continuing, many, even in their seasons of devotion, fail of receiving the blessing of real communion with God. They're in too great a haste. With hurried steps, they press through the circle of Christ's loving presence, pausing perhaps a moment with the sacred, within the sacred precincts, but not waiting for counsel. They have no time to remain with the divine teacher. With their burdens, they return to work. I want you to see this in your mind. When you have devotions, when you open up the scriptures and enter into prayer, did you know you're entering the circle of Christ's loving presence? That's a beautiful concept, isn't it? You are entering in the circle of Christ's loving presence. But she says, too many of us come to this, casually touch Jesus, and then go on with our day-to-day life. And she says, you carry your burdens with you to your work. In other words, you made contact with Jesus, but you failed to receive the blessing he intended. You see, well, you don't see it, but you'll see it when you read it. Amen? You hear it. You hear it in the the, the quote. You can check me later. Make sure I'm not lying to you. Don't believe the preacher, right? Okay. So this is what's going on. People are so busy that they they just want to casually touch Jesus and get the blessing they need and be able to cram more of the workday into their life. But what we're told here is, no, pause, stop. You need to pause and stop. You're too busy. It goes on to say, these workers can never attain the highest success until they learn the secret of strength. They must give themselves time. I I know none of us have time, amen? I just know this. Why? Because you ask anyone, hey, can you help me move some stuff? Man, I don't got time, right? That's like the common phrase, I don't got time. You know what God says? You need to make time, amen? He says, we need to give ourselves time. To do what? To think. How many of you, don't raise your hand, but just think to yourselves. How many of you throughout the week just don't even have time to think? Like, I've had days where they've ended and I'm like, did I even think today? Like, did I even, I I thought because I was memorizing all day, like science and stuff, but did I actually think? Did I actually take time to contemplate anything? Time to think. Time to pray. Time to wait upon God for the renewal of physical, mental, and spiritual strength. The wearied frame and the tired brain will be refreshed and the burdened heart will be lightened. Not a pause for a moment in his presence, she says, but personal contact with Christ to sit with him in companionship. Ephesus taught me something because they're so busy. I was like, man, they're so busy working for God. They're so active working for God. I'm active working for God. That means I'm likely to make the same mistake they made. And then I studied, how do busy people leave their first love? It's simple. They stop making genuine personal contact with Jesus. And once the personal contact with Jesus is gone, it's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when you will leave your first love. You can be really busy for God and yet not be connected at all with Him. It is possible, and Ephesus taught me that. 
So, so far we saw two things, and there's more text, but for time we're going to skip them. Um, that we can be right but lost, busy but lost, and the last thing I want to end with is present but lost. Present but lost. Um, the letter in Ephesus is written to the church of Ephesus, correct? So it's, it's written to people who actually go to, go to church, right? How many of you like going to church, amen? We're all happy to be back at church, right? Amen? Happy to be back at church. We love church. So this is written to people who go to church. Go to Luke 13. We're in Luke already, so that helps. Luke 13. In Luke 13, we have an interesting story, a parable about people that are lost. And I want us to look at this and to glean something from it in relation to Ephesus. Amen. Luke chapter 13. We're going to begin in verse 25. Can you guys hear me okay if I continue? Praise God. Okay, good, good. Because I can't hear me, but if you can hear me, that's perfect. Verse 25. Sorry, let's start at verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Verse 26. Then you will begin to say, we ate in your presence. We ate, excuse me, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. I don't want to rehash a sermon I preached here before um, on knowing God. If you haven't heard that presentation, I encourage you to look it up and listen to it. But the concept of knowing God in Scripture is really a theme that goes all the way from Genesis, right? From Genesis chapter really 4 all the way through Revelations in this idea that God wants you to know Him. But knowing God isn't knowing about Him. It's having an interpersonal relationship and experience with Him. Again, there's a whole sermon on that. I encourage you to listen to that if that's a new idea to you. But this text is built upon that concept that God doesn't want you just to know about Him. He actually wants a personal experience with you, right? Didn't the Bible say, taste and see the Lord is good? Amen? How many of you love to look at your favorite dish, like Thai food? Just stare at Thai food but not taste it. That'd be horrible. That'd be torture, right? Be like, no, 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 no. Like, put that in my mouth. Um, you know, God doesn't want us just to look at Scripture like, oh, God is love. That's nice for those people. No, 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 no. He wants you to know and experience His love for yourself. Amen? He doesn't want you to know that He can forgive sins. He wants you to know the joy of laying burdens at Calvary's feet. Like, He wants this to be a real, genuine experience for you, not just a theoretical concept. That's what it means to know God. Okay, so here in the text, there's people wanting to get in the door but they can't. And what was God's response? I don't, I don't know you. Now remember, that doesn't mean that God doesn't know about them. It means God doesn't have a one-on-one -on -one relationship or experience with them. Okay? But notice verse 26. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Question, were they in the presence of Christ? Yes or no? Ah, they were. Doesn't it sound like they had an experience with Christ? Yes or no? Yeah, because they ate and drank in the presence of Christ. Jesus taught in their streets. They heard the teachings of Jesus. They ate food 
in the presence of Jesus. It sounds like they're having an experience with Jesus, but question, are they going through the gates? No. Why not? Why does it sound like they're having an experience, but they're not going through the gates? Keep your finger here. We're coming right back. Go to Revelation 3.20. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. You didn't realize your fingers are going to get a workout today. I'm doing it to keep your hands warm. Amen? You're just moving the pages, all, all the whole presentation, back and forth, back and forth. Keeping the blood circulation. You can thank me later. Okay, Revelation 3.20. I want you to think, what's going on here? What's happening in the story in Luke? Why can they not go in, yet they're in the presence of Jesus? Revelation 3.20 Behold, Jesus speaking, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Does Jesus like food, yes or no? He does, right? Well, in, in, this, in this culture, in this time period, it's no different than our culture. When I go somewhere, when I go to Vegas and I'm going to catch up with some old friends or when I go to a different town and catch up with old friends, what's the first thing you think I do with my friends? We go eat, right? It's what Adventists do all the time. We love food, right? It's like, yes, we're going to hang out. Let's eat because over food, man, all the guards drop. Everyone's friendly. We're able to engage. It's just you really connect over food. Here Jesus is saying, I want to take you out to dinner. I want to have a meal with you, one-on-one, -on -one, me and you. And see, sometimes I think it's hard for us to really get our minds around this, but God wants to interact with you as if you are the only soul on this planet. That is such a unique concept to chew on. Like, He really wants to interact with you. Like, He wants your experience to feel like, man, like, it's, it's just me and God. Like, we have this one-on-one -on -one relationship. I love Him and He loves me and we're just all about each other like and again it's hard for us to grapple with this concept sometimes it's like a long distance relationship is what it feels like but this is what god desires for us to literally have the experience with him that is this one-on-one -on -one, very personal like when we sing that song jesus what a friend for sinners i mean is jesus really your friend he wants to be amen i mean when someone breaks your heart who do you call Unless you're really close to your family. Most of us call our best friend first, right? You call your friend. Jesus wants to be that friend. When you get that job promotion, who do you call? Aside from your spouse? Your best friend, right? And I tell my, I gotta tell my best. I, I have a friend in my life, this guy. I love this guy to death. Anything happens, good or bad, he's like the first person I call every time. I'm like, bro, you will not guess what happened. And then he gets all excited. He's like, bro, let me FaceTime, let me FaceTime you. He's like, hey, what's going on? Bro, you're not going to believe it. Tell me. Bro, you're not going to believe it. Just tell me, tell me. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, it's like, I just can't wait to talk to this guy. It's literally my best friend, right? Jesus wants to be that guy in your life, amen? Like, he wants to be that person, very tangibly. Okay, go back to Luke 13. So what's going on in Luke 13 with these people who are in the presence of Jesus? Revelation 3, Jesus says, remember, I want to eat with you and you with me. Look at the text carefully. When we read the Bible, we have to learn to look at the text carefully and take the text for what it says. Verse 26, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank where? In your presence. But he does not say we ate and drank with you. Is there a difference? If I were here, 
I don't know why I keep thinking about Thai food today, but anyways, if I were here eating Thai food with, with my best friend, and you guys were eating your own food there with each other, could you say you ate in my presence, yes or no? Yes. Totally. But could you say you ate with me? And that really brings this text home. These people were in the presence of others having an experience with Jesus, but they themselves were not having a personal experience with Jesus. But they were around people having a personal experience with Jesus. Because that's what they could say, we ate and drank in your presence, right? Well, how could you do that? Because he was eating with someone else near me. It says that he taught, in, look, if you look at the text, verse 26, and you taught in our streets. But it does not say you taught me. Is there a difference? A huge difference, right? It's one thing to hear the sermon. It's another thing to get a one-on-one -on -one Bible study from the presenter. Amen? Jesus wants to give you one-on-one -on -one Bible studies. He doesn't just want you to hear sermons. Amen? He literally wants to be that guy that shows up and says, hey, knocking at the door of the heart, open up today, open up this morning, I got a Bible study for you. I got a revelation for you. I got something in store just for you, if you will let me in. So what's going on with these people? They were in an environment where people were having an experience but they themselves were not. This is why places like Advent Hope are such a blessing, yet very dangerous. Such a, I love Advent Hope. I, love, I, I not just speaking, I love when I can slip in the back and just sit in the back and receive a blessing, hear a song, hear a sermon, and sneak back out. Amen? <laughs> that was a great Sabbath. Uh, but I love presenting too. But the danger is this, that we can come to a place where people are having an experience with Jesus, um, where people are presenting who have an experience with Jesus, where maybe some of the people here you're interacting with, your friends in your circle, are having interaction with Jesus. And at potluck, it's like, man, guys, I had this revelation this week. Oh, tell me, what did God, what happened? Oh, this happened. And someone else shares this happened. Someone else shares this happened. But in your heart of hearts, you know that you had no contact with Jesus. But you're excited and thrilled, and you receive a, as it were, like vicarious blessing from hearing all those people who had an experience with Jesus. And that's dangerous in the sense that it can give us a sense of false security. Like these people, we knock. Why can't I come in? They're all going in. I was with them every Sabbath. We ate together every Sabbath. I would hear about you every Sabbath. Yeah, that's true, but you never opened the door for me. My friends, we cannot get through the gates using the language of the text, on the coattails of someone else's experience with Jesus. It's not possible. Um, and this is dangerous where I work because it's a Bible college. It's a Bible college. Everyone's studying the Bible because it's homework, right? Amen? I got to study. I mean, that's the best homework you can have. But the danger is you can do all the work and be with a spiritual environment and because of it, feel that you yourself don't need to take that one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus. And my friends, it is dangerous. In, in the words of the Spirit of Prophecy, it is a fatal mistake like Ephesus made to think that they did not need to spend that one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus because they were right, busy, and present. What do I mean present? They were in the right place. They were in the church. They were geographically in the right place hearing about Jesus, but it's not enough. It's not enough. We need to have a one-on-one -on -one encounter every day. Amen? And here's the reality. I always like to share this with people, not to rebuke you, just to think. But 
I mean, when you love someone, is it hard to call them? I see a bunch of people, I, I, I see a, a lot of couples sitting together shaking their heads. No, right? Because it's not. When you love someone, is it hard to call them? No, it's easy to call them, right? I mean, and when they call, are you like, oh, it's so-and-so again. The second time today, are you serious? Why? I mean, maybe there are certain days, right? But that's not the norm, amen? Praise God. It's not the norm. Like when they call you, when you love them, you see them, you get excited, right? One of my... When I was teaching at the college, just to, just to get this, people remember stories that might help you remember the point better. Uh, one of my uh, ex, I had an ex-girlfriend during uh, this one time, and I really liked when they texted because we were long distance, right? And so what ended up happening was I was teaching class, and I used my phone sometimes for quotes and slides and things like that. And you know when you get a message, it pops up on your phone, right? And it shows you the name of who did it. So as I'm pacing and teaching, I saw the name. And I was like, oh, the name. And I was like, man, I got two more hours of lecture to go. And I'm like, so I'm teaching, but I'm thinking about the phone, right? And I'm just like teaching, and I'm thinking about, I was like, huh, I, I really just wonder, what does it say? Just really curious. Still got an hour and 50, 45 minutes to go. And I'm te- so then I do this, teaching, teaching, click, teaching, 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 da-da-da-da, slide, teaching, 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 look. And I was like, right? It's just like, because it was one of those things like when you are in love with someone, you can't, you don't want to wait two hours to hear what they have to say, amen? But why is it so hard for us to listen to Jesus? Maybe we have to take a step back and ask ourselves a very hard question. Do we love Jesus? And by the way, it's going to sound heretical when I say this. It's okay if the answer is no. It's okay if your answer is a genuine no. Actually, I don't love Jesus. I like Jesus, but I don't think I love him yet. That's okay because we're not technically biologically engineered just to fall in love at first. I mean, hopefully you don't. Hopefully you didn't meet someone on the street and be like, I think we should get married. I hope you don't do that, right? Like we're designed to build relationships and to grow in love over time and for it to develop and grow. It's okay if you just like Jesus because if you keep spending time with him, I promise you, you will fall in love with Jesus. And it's okay just to be okay with Jesus because if you spend time with him, you're eventually going to like Jesus. And if you keep spending time with him, you're eventually going to love Jesus. Amen? When I became a Christian, I got to know God just because I, I, for the first time, was convinced out of atheism, he was real. It was super, it was, he was my awkward friend. I started with awkward friend. Awkward friend Jesus. I used to pray like this. Yo, how you doing? Like, hi, I'm here again. So, about this thing, can you help me with it? I think you will. Hope you will. All right, good night, I think. Bye. Do you sleep? I don't know. Like, it was really weird. It was super weird. I didn't know what to pray. I didn't know anything about him. I didn't know anything about the Bible. It was awkward friend Jesus, but guess what? So if someone were to tell me at that time, do you love Jesus? What would my answer have been? I'm, I don't, like, love the guy. I mean, he, he's real. He's, I'm getting to know him kind of awkwardly, but you know, we're, we're there, right? We're awkward friends, awkward acquaintances. But eventually, Jesus went from awkward acquaintance to, hey, I think I kind of like this guy. He's really kind of cool. You know, these promises, they actually, they do happen. He got my back. Thank you. You actually do care about me. I'm really skeptical about people. I think you won my trust. Cool. And then I went from that to, man, he's like my friend. To he's my best friend. To now, I can't imagine a day without him. I just can't. Like, I genuinely love Jesus. And I know that because I love the book which talks about him. It's a good parameter, by the way. If we don't love the book which talks about him, it might help us to know whether we love him or not. 
And like I said, if your answer is no, that's okay. There is a spectrum of relationship, amen? It doesn't matter where you're at. It matters if you're just moving forward. That's it. It's okay if you're just awkward friends. Praise God you know him, amen? Time I didn't know him. So wherever you're at, get to know him. Because knowing him, loving him, is here what's being described as those who enter the gates. Last passage I want to read and we're, we're done. It's in Proverbs. Just to summarize this point, chapter 5, 11 through 14. God wants this one-on-one -on -one encounter. Sorry, I really digress there with that concept, but I really hope that that point got across to you of God wants this personal experience with you, regardless of where you're at, just to keep moving forward, getting to know him, spend time with him, experience him, and see him become a living reality in your life. Proverbs 5, verse 11. Before we read this, um, I'm going to share a quick thought and ask a question. I had a dream one time, horrible dream. Hope you never have this dream. I had a dream because of an Amazing Facts DVD called Final Events. Anyone ever see that old DVD? You know, that is such a cheesy looking DVD, but it is a life-changing DVD. I'll testify. There's a scene in that, in that movie where there's a biker outside New Jerusalem, tatted up, wearing leather, big guy. It looks like how I kind of used to look, minus the tats. Um, but I, used to, I, I remember I saw this guy outside the city, and I had this deep, burdening sense of feeling. And I was still an atheist at the time when I was watching this. I was just starting to study the Bible. I hadn't been baptized or professed Christianity yet. And I just like, was like, man, I'm outside the city. All I could think all day was, I'm outside the city. So guess what I had to dream about that night? Being outside the city. I woke up and there was a city in the distance and all these people were jumping for joy and I started jumping for joy with them. Like, why are we jumping for joy? It's like, we were dead and now we're alive. And I'm like, yeah, resurrection. I heard about this. It was real. This is exciting. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're listening to the guy who resurrected us give a speech. I said, all right, let's listen. Who is he? He's right there. His name's Lucifer. And I was like, what? And this guy on the hill is like, yeah, I resurrected you to take back my city where I was dethroned from my city. Let's go take my city. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is the wrong, like, this is the wrong side. And I see the city in the distance and I'm like, I'm like the biker in the movie. I'm outside. Guys, I will tell you what, I woke up, tears were streaming down my face when I woke up. It hit me. And I remember I just sat on the ground and I looked at the sky. Everyone marched toward the city and I looked at the sky and I thought, well, I know what happens next. And next thing you know, fire fell and I woke up. Very ominous dream. I hope none of you ever had that dream. Really shook me. But it made me ask a question. Man, I wonder what the people outside the city are going to say. Have you ever wondered that? Like, what are they going to say? What would go through the mind of a person outside the city? I think Proverbs 5 gives some insight. Let's look at verse 11. It says here, And you mourn at the last, when your flesh and your body are consumed, and say, How I have hated instruction, and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. Verse 14 is our key text. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. How sad is it going to be when church members are outside the city and they know what happens next? Just coming to the right place doesn't make you saved. Amen? You could be present, like at Ephesus. They were present, but lost. So we learned three things today. In summary, 
We looked at the church of Ephesus to learn some practical things. I'm just sharing with you three lessons I learned for me because I'm a busy person. I'm workaholic by nature. Um, and I saw myself in Ephesus um, through my Christian experience. We saw three things. Number one, it is possible to be right theologically and yet still be lost. Christianity is not all about right answers. God wants you to be right, amen? But he never wants you to be right at the expense of the tenderness and compassion of Jesus. Remember, you know, our, the famous apologetical text, right? Always be ready to give an answer. Remember, it first starts with sanctify the Lord in your heart, amen? So we can be right and lost. Number two, you can be a very active person in church activity and ministry and yet still be lost. We see that with Ephesus. They were actively engaged in still proclaiming, sharing, teaching, you know, working, laboring for the Lord, as the text says, laboring for the Lord for his name's sake. Yet they had made the fatal decision of leaving their first love. They were lost. It is possible to be active and lost. And number three, it is possible to be present. Many are present in the churches who are around Christ, who are hearing about Christ, but not having a one-on-one -on -one experience with Christ. And you can be present, but lost. And we're all at different places. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are. But the challenge is simple. How are you not lost in the text? It's simple. It all comes back to your first love. Amen? Never lose your connection, your personal daily experience with Jesus. The moment that is gone, it is not a matter of if, it is only a matter of when you abandon your first love. How many of you want to keep that first love? Amen? We saw three warnings from Ephesus this morning. This afternoon, I believe it's on Zoom at 4 o'clock. Yes? We're going to continue with Ephesus and we're going to look at the flip side. These are three warnings. We're going to see one admonition from Ephesus. And it's called, I'm going to give you the title ahead of time, but we'll talk about this afternoon. Because we talked about being uh, right but lost, active but lost, present but lost. This afternoon is entitled, Hating but Saved. Hating but Saved. So we're going to talk about that this afternoon. Um, but for us, again, individually and personally, my friends, stay close to Jesus. Amen? Have an experience with Him. Open the Word. Behold the cross. Engage him in personal contact, not for a brief moment before work or school. Cling to Jesus. Sit in that circle of his presence as long as you can. And don't leave until you know you receive the blessing. Amen? Don't leave his presence until you know you've received that blessing. Father in heaven, thank you for the chance to study your word. Thank you for the opportunity to look at Ephesus. Thank you for the counsel you've given us. I know that this church has saved my life. It literally saved my life as a young Adventist, as a young Christian, Lord. It guided my feet back to my first love when I was literally doing all three of these simultaneously, Lord. Active, you know, busy, seeking correct answers, theologically trying to be correct and right and to debate people and knowing that I was part of the remnant church. I was in the right place at the right time. And yet, Lord, I was as lost as a person out in the world because I was not connected with Jesus. Thank you for saving my life. And I pray that these words would impact at least one person here and would give them the desire and the motivation to cling to their first love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.